We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's special event is a special evening with Nicholas Davidoff. Uh, just, and I don't want to embarrass uh, Nicholas, but just to uh, give you some a quick little mini-bio. Uh, Nicholas graduated from Harvard. He has been a, Gu a Guggenheim Fellow, Berlin Prize Fellow of the American Academy, Anschutz Distinguished Fellow at Princeton, and is currently a Brantford Fellow at Yale. A Pulitzer Prize finalist for the Flyswatter, Nikki is a contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and Rolling Stone. And tonight we have this fascinating fellow in the clubhouse. So please help me welcome Nikki to the clubhouse. Uh, it's rare that anything non-baseball gets to come into the clubhouse. So uh, Nicholas is the author of two books. I'm sure many of you who are here and many listening to the podcast know of The Catcher Was a Spy, uh, about Mo Berg. This is the 20th anniversary of that book. And Nick's uh, last book, Collision Low Crossers, deals with football. So tonight's discussion will touch on both. But I think uh, to start, I think Mo Berg is the, the appropriate spot to start. And uh, it's, there's a lot to the story, so I don't want you to rehash his, uh, his life, which is impossible in five minutes. Uh, so maybe if there's anything 20 years later, uh, whatever first comes to mind about uh, Mo Berg or the book uh, that just hits you off the top of your head, to, it would be a nice starting spot. Sure. Um, I just want to thank you for inviting me to come here. It's such a, a, a beautiful and, and, and special place. I, um, I, I thank you all for supporting such a wonderful and unusual institution and the same with independent bookstores and it's really I'm I guess I'm feeling a little sentimental today my grandmother lived, who lived to be 101 lived around the corner and so I um, you know to come back to this neighborhood on her birthday as it turns out um, I think she'd be 105 today uh, it's um it just makes me feel I mean she was a lovely and wonderful person and it's it's nice to be here and um I think that the uh, catcher was a spy dedicated to her. So there you go. Anyway, Mo Berg, yeah. I mean, you never forget your first book. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I can remember just what it was like to have not much money to be down on Green Street in a funky little apartment that a friend owned that he was letting me use writing that book. And the way I wrote that book is... You know, when you're writing about someone who is professionally secretive, it's a tricky thing to do. And there was a lot of education for me as both a, a, someone who is learning about someone's life, but also learning about the institutions within the person walked that was helpful to me in the particular, but also just more broadly in the four books I've written since. A couple of things, you know, I was a, my first job after leaving college was I, I wrote for Sports Illustrated. And I wrote a little piece, not that little, but, you know, a, a, a magazine piece is quite different from a book. And I wrote a, a, a magazine piece about Berg, and I got some sense of him. But that's not the way I first heard of him. I first heard of him by 
I was re- looking in a baseball anthology, an anthology of great baseball writing, and there was a piece that was commissioned by the Atlantic Monthly in 1941, which is called Pitchers and Catchers. And it was basically a meditation on how baseball works and what it takes to succeed at baseball, particularly from the point of view of a pitcher or a catcher. And it's a wonderful piece of writing. I mean, there are references to Benjamin Franklin, to Seneca. There are passages in Latin, passages in Greek, passages from Michel Montaigne. There's a whole disquisition <laughs> on the technology involved in winding yarn. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a very unusual piece of writing. And the guy who wrote it, I noticed that his little agate type on top had been a spy, in addition to having been a Major League Baseball player himself. And that was my introduction to Berg. And I thought, what an interesting person. He writes so well, and it, I think it really does remain one of the best things, uh, certainly the finest essay ever written by a former baseball player. I mean, you know, Ball Four is a magnificent book, we could argue. But it's a, it's a, it's a first-rate meditation and piece of writing. And so then I wrote this piece, and this editor at, at Pantheon at Random House had been trying to encourage me to, to, to write some sort of book for him. And I, I had the feeling that I didn't want to write a sports book per se. I wanted to write something that was broader than that. And Mo Berg was broader than that. And that's one of the things that really appealed to me about Berg is that, you know, within the community of baseball, he was always he was always the other. He was invariably an outsider. I mean, he grew up in Newark. He was a, the Jewish son of immigrants from the Ukraine. And he was an American outsider. But even in these very inside American realms, I mean, we can call the OSS and the CIA about as inside as it gets. And you could say the same for Major League Baseball. I think that even within both of those realms, he was always on the outside. Among baseball people, he was always, you know, the guy who could speak a dozen languages and couldn't hit in any of them. He was the, you know, <laughs> he, he, was the he was the sort of the baseball intellectual, and, and that was very important in his life because this was very appealing to sports writers who made him famous by writing lots and lots of columns about him. But then, once he became involved in spying and espionage, he came to know all these atomic physicists and some military people too. And among them, he always had extensive cachet because he was again the other. He was a base baseball player, and I like that. And um, I remember that how, how much time it took to figure out how to learn about a spy. I mean, you're writing about someone, after all, whose whole, whole vocation is secrecy. So how do you learn about someone who is professionally secretive? And um, I spent a lot of time in the National Archives, and I spent a lot of time with CIA people. And one of the things I learned is that espionage people were as curious about Moberg as everybody else was. And so they were really nice to me. I mean, one of the great days, you know, was... Um, the OSS files from the Second World War declassified, so you all could see them in the National Archives, and I spent months going through them, sort of tracing Berg's travels as, a, as an intelligence officer during, during the war. But the CIA operations files are not declassified, and I didn't know what his role was. And I remember that eventually I talked to two former directors, both Richard Helms and William Colby, and Helms was incredibly nice to me, and he couldn't show me the files because it was against the law or it was against policy anyway. But what he could do is he set me up with someone who had seen them, a CIA staff psychiatrist. And at that point, I knew an awful lot. I knew more about Moberg at that point than anybody had ever known about Moberg, including probably himself. (laughs) One of the interesting things about Moberg was his capacity for warding off his sense of himself, I think, which is not an uncommon thing, but is, is an interesting thing. And anyway, so I went to CIA that day to see this psychiatrist, and um, I, in effect, played Mo Berg for him, and he, you know, it was sort of the quick and dirty psychoanalysis, and it was, it was a wonderful <laughs> and kind of surreal day in my memory. The other thing I really remember is, you know, I wrote it, and I told you in that apartment not far from here, and a, a big and crucial part of nonfiction writing is the architecture of your book is structure. Something about the way that you organize the book 
should just in terms of structure should 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 amplify your subject. And I remember that I spent a lot of time on the on the living room floor with all these index cards that I created with little facts and ideas and thoughts about Berg, moving them around like boxcars on a train, you know, trying to find the right structure. And then once this was all done, this was very old school. I remember that I <laughs> once I had the order, I piled them all up, and it looked like a, it was this huge stack. And I put this stack next to my computer. And then I wrote the book from the top all the way down. So at one point, I had two parallel buildings, and then it went up the other way. And I remember the incredible jubilation of getting to that last, and then immediately anxiety, because I didn't know if it was any good. But, you know, at least I was done. And I was going broke. You know, I was paid almost nothing to write the book. Nobody, you know, they were excited to have somebody write about this, but he was not really... The people like you people who probably knew who he was, there was a coterie of people who did, but... He was still a fairly peripheral figure in some ways. And I, yeah, but I'll never forget that feeling of getting to the last index card. Yeah. Something you said, I'm not going to go too much into Moberg because I have a feeling I've, uh, our crowd has a lot of questions about him. Sure. But when you said you didn't know if it was any good, uh, which is somewhat going to lead us into the next area what we'll get to, uh, did you have any idea? I mean, the book has gone on. It's, it's everyone who loves baseball writing knows of this book did you have any idea when you when you did finish this that 20 years later that they'd be talking about this I'm just not built that way I I I when when the book began to you know I remember the day it was reviewed in a very beautifully written review on the front page of New York Times book review and um, I remember I was in Boston preparing to do something, give a reading or something, and the, my publisher found out about this, and it was, you know, the, the review of your dreams, and there it was, and it had a wonderful drawing, and the person who'd written about it was a, himself a wonderful writer, and it was just a, you know, it was a dream, and, I, and the, the, the person, someone from Pantheon Publishers called me up, and they said, this has just happened, your life has changed forever, and my reaction was incredible relief. I wasn't, I thought, now I'm allowed to do it again. And that's how I always just thought about it. This is what I always wanted to do um, if I couldn't be the Red Sox shortstop. Sorry. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it just made me feel a sense in, in a very, you know, I, I, I come from a long line of sort of vaguely disappointed men whose careers didn't really work out and things like that. And I was always in terror that this was going to happen. So the idea that I'd taken on this profession, which seemed risky, and that now I could do it again was gratifying and a real relief, but one of the things that i found is, is the anxiety never really goes away. You hope you get better at what you're doing, but over time, you, you, you try your hardest, and then there's always doubt. I mean, I'm writing something right now, and I woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking, is this the right decision about this, you know, this, this, this little part of it that I'm struggling with? And that really never goes away, but with, but I, I, it was, what can I say? I mean, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a dreamy experience. Yeah. <laughs> So, which will kind of lead us into, uh, you, have, you start out with the Mo Bird book, right. quote-unquote baseball book. Your last book, Collision Low Crossers, a quote-unquote football book. If you could just speak a little bit about the differences between writing about baseball versus football. Sure. Um, you know, I edited for the Library of America their literary, literary anthology of baseball, so I... I, I for that anthology, I read a tremendous amount about, you know, about baseball, but also just a lot of great baseball writing. And there is a there is a lot of really really good baseball writing, as you all know. And there's some very very good reasons for that. 
first and foremost, most people have played baseball on some level and 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 have had some sort of success enough so that they can. It, it, it works on the imagination in a way so that when you're watching, you can think back on things that you've done, or you could imagine yourself in those circumstances. Based the scale of baseball players is generally fairly similar to typical size of people. You know, they look that a, a dugout looks very much like a group of people walking down the street here. You know, steroids. Um, yeah, <laughs> the rules are well understood. You know, everybody knows the rules. Um, you know, and, and there's four. People who are writing about baseball, there's been tremendous amount of access. The players are accessible both, you can look at them, but also the game moves at a, at a, at a sort of a pause, which I think is very useful to writers. It's a, it's a deliberate, gradual pace of the game without, you know, and there's no clock to it. So that it leaves time for sort of thinking and reflection, which is, of course, always the, 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 um, the aid to writers. I'd also say then that baseball, you know, you could, baseball writers have always gathered with players and managers and things, and there's the expectation there'll be lots of conversation both before the game and afterwards. So it's a game of real reflection. Football is nothing like that. And I think, by and large, football writing really hasn't been very good, and it's not the fault of writers. The problem with football writers, football writing is the game moves at a, you might say, a texting pace. It goes very fast and then it stops. And it, very fast and then it stops. And there's sort of that sort of stuttering um, timbre to it, which means that, you know, it's very difficult to sort of have, uh, it's, it's very difficult to attach yourself to it. The players are obscure. They wear masks. They wear, in effect, armor so you can't see them. The rules are really abstruse. They're always changing. And even football people in football half the time don't know what's going on with certain kinds of rules. You see these rules conferences and things. <laughs> and, you know, the only reason that football has become so popular is because of instant replay and it's slowed down. You ask a coach after a game something about what's happened in the game, he'll tell you, I, can't, I don't know until I see the tape. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and then something else that's true is that the game is sort of concealed in plain sight. It, the whole game really takes place at these NFL facilities, which are these sort of walled, slightly CIA-like places where people are gathering and they're spending six and a half days a week planning. And the result of those plans, you see it when you watch a game, right? You've seen them, coaches holding up, they're wearing their... Their, um, their, their headphones and they're holding up the what is in effect a, looks like a bistro or a diner menu or something, right? <laughs> and they're keeping it close to their face so that there won't be any opposition lip reading. And as you look across this <laughs> diner menu, you realize that this is the entire plan for the game. This is it. And this is the most popular institution in America, and nobody knows what the hell is going on. <laughs> nobody knows what's in that diner menu. And even if they could, even if they did know what was on it, they wouldn't know what it was because it's all encrypted, right? And, and then the game goes on, and you still don't know. And afterwards, you have no idea whether it worked or not because nobody's telling. And so I thought this is just amazing. Here's the most popular thing in America, and it's a big secret. And I wanted to know what was on those diner menus. So that was really the impetus for writing about football for me. Is And so what I hoped to do, I'd always wanted to write a book about a group of regulars, you know, a group of people who come together and... For, in, for a serious engagement with something that is so interesting and compelling to them that they do it to the exclusion of everything else. And I thought a lot about Richard Rhodes's great book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, in which physicists of many stripes come together. And it's a book about a certain kind of community and a certain kind of process and a certain kind of effort. And I really like that, and I always hope to write a book like that. And... You know, I thought they were, thought of them as the regulars. It could be a bunch of guys at a bar, you know, who came together for some sort of purpose. Um, anyway, once I met some NFL coaches and I saw how they were planning games, I knew that these were my regulars. And so what they allowed me to do was to watch them plan a season and then each individual game. 
And as I watched, I came to see that this was a literary way to think about football because the process of planning things was a slow, deliberate unfolding of something. It was an investigation effect of a series of ideas that's not really that different from writing. And, you know, the books that were most helpful to me in writing about football weren't football books, with one exception. The great football book I always thought was Paper Lion, George Plimpton's book about where he, you know, joins the Detroit Lions as their last string quarterback and he goes through training camp with them. It's an incredible book, but you notice that that's his solution to the basic football problem is he joins a team so that he has access so that he can see people when they take their helmets off and he sees the playbook and things. But that, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. It's a true classic and it completely holds up. But, you know, that, again, it's a solution to access. And so for me, like a book like, I'll just throw it out, but a book that was really helpful, the singer Paul Simon, who I'd written about, had recommended to me a book called A Giacometti Portrait, which is about a guy named James Lord has his portrait painted by the artist Giacometti. And every day, Giacometti paints his portrait. And at the end of the day, Giacometti goes into incredible rage, thinks, I can't do this. It's, you know, I'm, I'm no good as an artist. He tears up the portrait. And then the next day, he's back at it. And he's restarting it. And that's exactly the way football coaches behave. Every day, they go in there. And they're there for 16 hours planning the game against the Packers. And then at the end of the day, they go, this is terrible. We're going to get killed. And they tear it up. So that's basically how it was. <laughs> now, so this was with the Jets. This was with the Jets. It could have been any team. I wanted to write, you know, I, I, I wanted to write a book about a, a, a sort of a typical NFL experience. And, you know, the players and the coaches move pretty fluidly from team to team. So that what they, they assured me that what I was seeing was sort of an em- emblematic NFL experience. But, you know, it's also true that the Jets had one of the great American characters who was running their team, who was Rex Ryan. And I couldn't have done it without him. And he's... You know, every book or every writer needs somebody at the center anchoring it who's a real who's a real and vivid and genuine and interesting character, and Rex is that. I mean, flawed, intelligent, unusual, eccentric, funny. You know, he's a, he's a wonderful guy, and New York is lucky to have somebody like that, although it really saddens me. I mean, this is one of the things that I think distinguishes football from baseball. Baseball has always been really, really good at making the great personalities within the game really sh- you know it, baseball is is, is, is is rewards eccentricity and in football it you know maybe it's partly the nature of the sport where baseball individuates <laughs> football is something that comes together and I felt that you know Rex has toned it down some over the years and I miss the old unbridled <laughs> Rex who would say anything I mean I just thought he was he was really funny and he was real and he was vivid and um, he'd say the craziest things but they were smart crazy you know and I, I miss that do you do you watch uh, baseball and fo- do you follow baseball and football? Yeah, I mean now, I mean with baseball, you know, I, it, it hasn't been a great year for my Red Sox. That was my grandfather's team. I inherited them. That's the way most people come to a team. But I mean, it's only deserved after last year. Otherwise, they'd become the Yankees. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and with football, you know, the way football works is NF. They call it NFL, not for long, and everybody just. At the end of the year, they spread all over America. So I root for all these different teams because the char- I root for the people who, I mean, you would all be the same. If you had spent that kind of an intense year and a half with a group of people, you'd root for them too. But now they're everywhere. Rex is still here in New York. The defensive coordinator, Mike Patton, is now the head coach of the Browns. So, you know, I, of course I root for him. I mean, he's got the jo- jo- dream job of his life, and, you know, he just, and he's got this crazy new quarterback who's so talented and also so unpredictable. Yeah. You know, and then the the, the, the offensive co- uh, line coach is now the offensive coordinator of the Cowboys and 
so I just see the, the map of America now as sort of a series of beacons with the NFL coaches who I had, you know, this brief, um, for me, really resonant moment in life with. And I, so I look at the map and I think, oh, Chicago, there's Matt Cavanaugh, you know. Oh, Oakland, you know, there's Joey Klinkscales, you know. Oh, you know, uh, Dallas, there's Bill Callahan, and you know Cleveland, there's Mike Pettin, and so forth. So that's how I sort. I root for. I root for them just because I don't really care which team wins. I care if the, these guys. It's going well for Brian Schottenheimer in St. Louis this week because they were all uniformly so nice to me vis-a-vis being nice to readers. And um, I like. I, I, I thought there were a lot of really bright football. You know, most of football takes place in classrooms. Very little time spent on a practice field, and so it's a game of a lot of conversation and learning. And they were really, really kind to sort of like teach me on their time uh, when you say they were kind the coaches the players everybody most well I mean there were you know there's a lot of teasing that goes on I mean I didn't see anything on the level of what happened with Richie Incognito in Miami last year which was you know one of the several terrible scandals that have been involved in football in recent years I saw the opposite I mean by and large I saw people older players and more experienced players and players with more cachet, like Darrell Rivas, for example, or Antonio Cromartie, sticking up for the younger players and teaching them and, and so forth. I mean, this is how that Richie Incognito situation happens. When you hear about locker room culture, in the NFL, it's not really where everybody's coming together in the locker room for any length of time. Mostly where players come together for a length of time is in the individual position rooms. And those are little windowless chambers with low ceilings. And if there's somebody in there who has it in for you, pretty quickly you're going to hate your life because there's nowhere to go and you have to be there. I mean, football, they, they, they work to the exclusion of just about everything else in life while they're there. And to be in that room and have somebody who's in a position of authority or at least, you know, again, greater cachet, it's really hard. I didn't see much of that. They did give me a mean nickname at one point, the quarterbacks. I used to sit in the quarterbacks meeting every morning, which is how the day began, and then I'd switch over to the be with the defensive coaches for the rest of the day. I just wanted to see the you know the offensive perspective. And the quarterbacks were like, if you're going to watch us lose, we're going to give you a hard time and see if you can take it. So they used to give me a little bit of a hard time. and you know, But nothing, nothing. Like For the most part, they were. And I appreciated getting a hard time from them because I saw a little bit more of what their life was like. It was never about me. It was always, that's how you have to think about it if you're writing about a group of people. It can't be about you. If there, if something redounds to you, you just have to think about your, your own personal experience as something that is representative of your subjects. And so really that's how I thought about it. Well, no, usually, uh, well, I'd say 99% of the time, I don't like the authors to read anything from their books. Uh, but we're going to make an exception for two reasons. One is you're a fantastic writer. Oh, and two is, uh, to be uh, all in, in, in all honesty, uh, I was a, uh, a football fanatic, a Giants fanatic, until they started the uh, personal seat licenses. And I have not watched a football game. I gave up my season tickets. I have not watched a football game since then. Nothing against your book, but I have not read that book. Uh, so, for both of those reasons, if there's anything from the book that you would like to read, this will be the only time we have anything about football in the clubhouse, so you should be the one to uh, read something from that book. Well, thank you for not throwing a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I, can, I, you know, I can read you a couple of short passages if you guys are okay with this. If, you don't, if, if this is a huge violation, I won't. No, then we're going to get to the questions. 
You know, football, one of the things is, is there's a blizzard of names. And I, I don't know if you guys, like me, are fans of the TV show The Wire. But I mean, that was, I think, the greatest show ever made for television. And there are all sorts of reasons why. And one of the reasons is there's just a blizzard of characters. And yet the writers are so good that very quickly in the beginning they, they achieve a certain purchase with their viewers so that all these names are coming at you and you're staying with them as you get to know these people before anything big starts to happen. I can't introduce you to all these people. Football teams are, unlike baseball teams, football teams are full of people who are coming and going. There are, you know, 150 people in this book. So you should just assume that these are football coaches that we're talking about. It's the lockout, so the players aren't there. It's just a bunch of coaches sitting around thinking about football, meeting all day, every day, looking at film, thinking in the summer, thinking about how can things get better? You know, how can we improve our team? How can and so they're looking at every play by every player and every practice and every game over his old damn career or something. It was like twelve hours a day in the middle of summer, and so that's what's going on. And by the way, I should just say that they usually most people who know me call me Nikki, but these guys all called me Nick, and they even put it on my locker, Nick Davidoff. And I was thinking about it, and I suddenly realized that that was because Nick hits harder than Nikki. Um, so. <laughs> As the lockout bore steadily into June, its third month, there were more conversations among the defensive coaches than before about matters unrelated to football. Mark Carrier and I were talking about music one day, and when I mentioned Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sound of Silence, he said he'd never heard of it. Really, I asked him? Everybody's heard that one. You lived in Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s. You couldn't have avoided it. Carrier insisted that no, he had never heard it, and then, like the great attacking safety he'd once been, Carrier went after Simon and Garfunkel. So, Nick, let me ask you something, he said. Those two guys get along, or are they like all those people who have success and end up hating each other? I was about to tell him that he was on to something when DT walked by. Hey, DT, said Carrier, have you ever heard of the song The Sound of Silence? DT looked at Carrier, then he looked at me. You could see him considering the situation, noticing who was doing the asking, who was standing next to that guy, and what it all must mean. Finally, the most intelligent cover cornerback of his time replied, no, I might have been aware of it, but I never went ahead and heard it. <laughs> Another morning, Carrier arrived in a film-watching meeting with a parenting story. The previous day after work, he'd attended his 13-year-old daughter's youth soccer league game where she'd received a yellow card for inflicting violence on an opposing player. Carrier accepted chip-off-the-block congratulations from the other defensive coaches. Then he was asked how they'd reacted in the moment. Had he said anything vicious to the official? Carrier said that he just sat there cuddling his dog, Lucky. What kind of a dog was Lucky, Jeff Weeks wanted to know. The kind of little dog Jack Nicholson had in as good as it gets, Carrier said. That's a nice dog, Weeks said. Not to Carrier. Hell no, it barks all the time, shits all over the house, but it's good at traveling in its soccer games. Mike Petten roused himself. Well, then, Mark, why not leave it in the car except for soccer games? <laughs> Even during the lull, these were football coaches, and they were always coaching something. When they learned that at a party for toddlers, my son had interrupted some singing to run across the room and tackle a little girl dressed up as a ballerina in a pink tutu, the coaches were thrilled, ecstatic, and gave me seminars on form tackling technique to pass along. Nick, tell him to lower your center of gravity. Nick, tell him to hit on the rise. Another morning, I encountered linebackers coach Bob Sutton in the kitchen area between the offensive and defensive sides of the coaching pod. Here, there were two coffee options. A fresh pot of Dunkin' Donuts brew was always available, or you could make your own single cup at the fancy Flavia machine, as Sutton was doing. I'd never tried the Flavia. Sutton said that had to change immediately. Then he proceeded to walk me through it. Okay, Nick, he began. Get fired up. Proper procedure is everything, Nick. First, you choose your coffee. 
I selected French roast described on the packet as dark and intense. Sutton continued that choice secure, Nick? Good, good. Okay, Nick, good selection, good selection. Now hit the upper left-hand button, make it open machine. Now have your packet ready, Nick. Okay, install that packet. Got it in there nice and snug? Good, Nick, good. Good technique, good. Good technique, good technique. Nick, we're making progress. Now close the window, and this is key. You must lock the empty cup in under the source so the coffee will not come out. We locked it in. An aromatic smell filled the galley. Sutton nodded approvingly. Nice job. Good work. Enjoy that coffee, Nick. <laughs> uh, you want me to do one more little one? Or one is that more. No, one more is good. All right. So, um, okay. So I've been with the Jets seven months, day and night, seven days a week, and finally the games came. And the least important thing in the NFL is the fourth exhibition game. This is the last exhibition game before the season starts. And the fourth exhibition game, all they want out of that is for nobody to get hurt. And so all the good players don't play. Only players who play are the players who are either definitely not going to make the team or who are right on the bubble and who may or may not make the team. Um, What do you need to know? You need to know, I told you Mike Pettin is now the Cleveland Browns coach. He was the defensive coordinator. Jim O'Neill was the safeties coach. He's now Pettin's defensive coordinator with the Browns. And um, so the Jets are going to play the Eagles now in the fourth exhibition game. The last preseason game mattered so little that Mike Patton intended to give the other defensive coaches the experience of calling a play series under live conditions. Before the game, each of them received a call sheet. Nick Patton told me, study up. He handed me a color-coded, glossy piece of paper with calls from the playbook listed under the various personnel groups and then divided further by the down and distance situation. <laughs> be ready, he said, you'll be in control of a multi-million dollar machine. Immediately, there was a sense of panic. (laughs) From the installs, I had a vague understanding of some of the plays. I had no confidence I'd remember them under pressure, much less know how to select them in relation to the strengths and weaknesses of young Philadelphia Eagles players I'd never heard of. Still, who could resist? I began to work up mnemonics to memorize calls like Odd Wolf Fire Zone, 3-2 Crown 1, Nickel Dog 1, and Dime Spike 1 Vegas, calls that were, of course, mnemonics already. Invariably interesting was the etymology of the call names. Zip Double Field was for Jason Taylor, the former Jets pass rusher, who played his college football at the University of Akron, whose team was the Zips, nickname. Squirrel dated back to the Baltimore Ravens and referred to the linebacker Jared Johnson, whose rural small-town southern childhood was said to involve squirrel hunting and maybe also squirrel eating. (laughs) As for Dive and Spike 1 Vegas, it had its origins in a pass coverage drop head coach Rex Ryan had created in Baltimore for a big defensive lineman named Keith Washington, who played his college football for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, in the locker room at the stadium for the Eagles game, we all put on khaki pants and matching green and white Jets poloed shirts and caps. I slipped my folded call sheet into my pocket, then I removed and unfolded it several times to make notes, reminding myself of things. Golf carts drove us through the stadium tunnels to the elevator, which then delivered us to the coaching box at press level. There weren't enough chairs in the box, so I stood behind the coaches, as I'd done each previous week. In that little glassed-in room, even though there were spectators right there in adjoining boxes or in seats below, you felt removed from the enormous crowd around you, felt you were sealed off in a capsule that it was its own little mind space. Up in the booth, coach after coach had his turn calling defensive plays, passing them down to DT on the field, who sent them out to the middle linebacker. At the very end of the third quarter, with the Jets losing a listless game 21-7, Mike Patton looked at me. My heart shifted. Nick, you ready, he said in that even voice of his. Jim O'Neill was going to call the first and second down plays of the drive. The third down calls were mine. O'Neill, excited, said something about, let's do this, buddy. 
I took the seat beside O'Neill and retrieved my call sheet covered now with so many notations that some calls were illegible. I put on the headphones thick and warm as earmuffs. On the open defensive channel, I could hear Rex Ryan and DT talking down on the sideline. The special teams coach, Ben Kotwika, who'd flown night missions in Apache helicopters in Iraq before joining the NFL, had told me what to expect from the headphones. We've got six people on five radios, and it's just like Baghdad, Nick. That headset chirp... That headset chirps as much as any radio frequency I was ever on when I was flying. Rex talks to Pet. DT tries to call in the defense. Sut doesn't usually say shit. O'Neill a little bit, but mostly Rex, Pet, and DT. And then he said, trying to get 11 guys onto the field, that fog of battle, everybody's got a game plan, but things happen out there, and the enemy's got to vote. Patton showed me which button to push to speak. Behind me, Scott Cohen was calling out personnel groupings. What looked orderly and matter-of-fact when Patton did it now felt as though it were happening very, very fast. I looked at my sheet trying to follow as O'Neill made his calls, doing a nice job of backing up the Eagles to third and 14. All yours, Nick, he said, his voice thrilling with accomplishment. I had no idea what to call. I blurted, nickel dog, a five-man pressure. I like dogs. <laughs> then I watched my nice nickel dog leave me, trot smoothly through the wires, stop to get a pat and a command from DT, and then dash out onto the field where the Eagles second-year quarterback Mike Kafka showed my nickel dog a trick, completing a 20-yard throw for a first down. <laughs> My face was scarlet. How can I explain? There was the feeling that Patton had loaned me something rightfully his, something valuable, something I had no business touching. It was a borrowed sports car I'd wanted to return without scratches, and already it had a great big dent. The Eagles drive continued. Again, O'Neill got to third down, third and two. Again, he said, all yours, Nick. His voice a bit less enthusiastic this time. I had always liked the sound of Dime Spike 1 Vegas. The call meant that the Dime were... Sixth defensive back should blitz. Meanwhile, another one of the defensive linemen, in this case Marcus Dixon, would bluff a rush and then make a Vegas drop into short area pass coverage. Quarterbacks didn't expect a lineman to be prowling around back there, and if the call worked, they wouldn't see Dixon. Dixon was a large figure, nearly 300 pounds, but quarterbacks were like most people. Under pressure, they surmised, noticing only what they had seen before. Patton was right. All the sounds around me fell away, and it was intoxicating to be in control of these fast, powerful men to make what was about to happen on a field below take place. I felt a little like a puppet master. I spoke. They moved. I called for the blitz, garnishing it with the Vegas drop, and then something amazing happened. Kafka, under pressure, threw over the middle, right where Marcus Dixon's long left arm could reach. Dixon tipped the ball, enabling the defensive back Ellis Langster to intercept the pass and return at 67 yards for a touchdown. In the box, as Langster zoomed toward the end zone, everyone was yelling except for me. I was incredulous and now felt like a drug kingpin who'd been sampling some of his own product. In the aftermath, I was struck by how purely happy the Jets' defensive coaches were. The play had worked to perfection, just as its designers had imagined it. Dime Spike 1 Vegas was such a beautifully conceived football idea that rookies and free agents could succeed with it. I could succeed with it. I thought that, even as I was completely dumbfounded by the utter luck of it all, and I would remiss, be remiss if I didn't tell you, that Patton then said, well, Nick, if you're going to call a pick six, you get to keep calling plays and bring us right back into this one. So I immediately led the Eagles down for a game-sealing field goal. <laughs> Just before we get to questions, I, I forgot to mention before, well, obviously there is great football writing. The name of the book, Collision Low Crossers, is available for sale here by John, as is The Catcher Was a Spy. For those of you listening, you can get both books anywhere. The difference is tonight, John is having a little special if you buy both books. So afterward, please see John, and then Nicholas will be glad to uh, sign the books for you. Now to the questions. 
who wants to uh, lead off? I was just going to ask, you mentioned that essay at the beginning uh, of the so well written. Is that a real Yeah, well, I'm, I have no pre- I have no skin in this. Um, so <laughs> if you buy the Library of America's baseball literary anthology, it, and just in my judgment, much of the greatest baseball writings all in there are included in the anthology. Um, I'm sh- you can also find it where I first read it was a, an anthology of baseball writing collected by a wonderful man named John Thorne called The Armchair Book of Baseball, and it's yeah. in one of those two volumes. But... Uh, the Library of America is a wonderful nonprofit institution, so I always recommend it. You know. Who wrote the review of your book? Uh, he, he's a, a man who writes about physics professionally. <laughs> You're allowed to know, but I, I'm going to mispronounce his name, so I will look it up and give it to you afterwards. Einstein. It's, it's like yeah. no, I mean, it's, it's, phonetically it would be Dick Teresi, but I know. <laughs> Speaking of physics, did you read the football book, Your Own Cage, Just a Bruise, by Robert Heisenberg? I did not. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. Sorry. Rob is now, you would know him as the doctor for the biggest loser, but he was the chief physician for the Oakland for the Raiders, and he was Lionel Zato's doctor. And he, his father is a famous nuclear physicist, Mr. element named after him. He went to Harvard Medical School for fun, so that he could write medical TV soap operas. That sounds and like quite a lot. pretty much did what he wanted to do. And uh, you'd find that fascinating because Rob would talk about in the book, he was the internist. And Al Davis's orthopedist would tell the players, you're okay, it's just a bruise, and send them back in. And Rob would try to mitigate that in ha- during halftime and making sure that they understood you have to see a doctor about this. And he was the one that tipped them off on the whole steroids thing with Alcedo and all that stuff, at which point the NFL forced him to resign his position as president of the NFL Physicians Council. So, and it's a great book, so I would recommend that, because he was on the forefront of what with concussions and all this issue, and well, this came out decades ago. You know, one of the things that was um, of particular interest to me was the role of pain in football, and there are many, you know, I mean, there aren't many jobs where you go into your job knowing that it's going to hurt every day and that professional football basically has an 100% injury rate. Everybody gets hurt. And I thought a lot about pain and, you know, how, how people thought about it because, for example, concussions was everybody who I knew who, when I was writing the book asked me about concussions and you know it is a, it was the great american sort of conversation about football that was going on but within the you know walls of the facility nobody talked about it the only time i ever learned anything about concussions is when i asked about it and even then people were reluctant and of course there are lots of reasons for that one reason is is that football like the military is a very top down um, institution in which everybody has their own job and that was really somebody else's job to think about concussions Second, it involves a lot of very young people who think it's not going to happen to them. Third, it's just, I think, pragmatically true that if you want to succeed at something that is that fast and that dangerous, if you're thinking about getting hurt, you're probably going to get hurt because it's going to slow you down. So you just really can't think about it. And I also just thought, though, that there's a fair amount that football really was a salve for a lot of the people I met in terms of different kinds of pain. Quite a number of the football players that I met came from either single-parent families, just significant, you know, personal disadvantage, or even from orphan. They were orphans, and they said that 
as much as they enjoyed playing the game, what really drew them to football and the most, I think, fulfilling part of football wasn't necessarily the actual play. It was having, in effect, a surrogate family of um, you know, coaches and older players who satisfied for them some of the functions that it maybe had been missing earlier in their lives. There's a tremendous amount of closeness that goes on. That guy, Bob Sutton, that I briefly read about there, the coffee guy, he had been for 20 years the head coach at the military academy at West Point, and he was a wonderful college coach before going to the pros. And he took a real interest in a lot of the in military history and a lot of the professors and also his students who he, he met at West Point. He said that there was a lot of commonality between soldiers and football players. And football people hear a lot about war and football, and they, they're, they, they're always very careful to say, look, one of these things involves dying and it involves, you know, what can we say, the ultimate sacrifice, and football is just a game. But they do structurally have a lot in common, and one of the things that Sutton said is that football players and soldiers, he thought, had a commonality of purpose in why they did what they did. He said soldiers, by and large, weren't fighting for the United States of America, per se. They were fighting for the small group of people who they had come to know and who they were intimately engaged with as they were out there in battle. It's the same with football players. For all of it, football players, most football players anyway, aren't, you know, they, they want to be paid, they want to make money, they like, you know, the adulation that comes their way. But what really makes football players, he said, is that they're playing for one another. And in successful teams, it's because they really, really care about each other. And I saw, I mean, it sounds a little bit, I don't know, how does it sound? It maybe even sounds a little mawkish. But in my experience, it was absolutely fundamentally true. And I spent a lot of time with, you know, a bunch of different players. And there was one rookie player who at a certain point, you know, we, we were talking. He said, you know, you have to understand, football is my father. And then there's this long, it's toward the end of the book, but there's this long passage where he explains some of what I've just tried to say very quickly. Harry? I see uh, several women in the room, and it's kind of hard to talk about football right now without referencing the Ray Rice situation. Um, I'm wondering, because you seem to have spent some quality, intimate time with coaches and players, did you, uh, you know, because I don't pay much attention to football, but what I hear is that there's a, a locker room culture of you know, de- degrading comments towards women and just that there's a general attitude that it, it sort of permeates and is very pervasive in the conduct that's, I, I'm guessing, um, that you see in, in the locker rooms. Did you notice any of that or, or did it make you feel uncomfortable? Was it something that you could identify or I'm just curious if it, if it really is true and, you know, if, if you can shed some light on that for us, because to me, what Ray Rice did in that elevator wasn't a mistake the way some people are saying. It was a mistake. He made a mistake. He should forgive him. It was a mistake. It, it was an attitude that, you know, sort of infects the way he thinks about women and the way he treats his wife. And I'm wondering what your comments are about Sure. I think the first thing I would say is that locker room culture assumes that there, there is something, that this, it's, a, it's a sort of a monolith, that there's just one way that people are. And I, my experience anyway, and it's just my experience, is that a football team is about as diverse a group of people as you're likely to find. There's every kind of person there. And Rex Ryan used to say that the huddle is America. And it really was one of the things I noticed is that there, 
people come from all over. They were, and he, he had these long, funny riffs. I mean, he speaks in a very bluesy way before the team. And when he introduced the team, he'd say, well, you know, we've got rich kids and poor kids. And he would, we got tall guys and short guys. We've got, you know, fat guys and thin guys. We've got ugly guys and handsome guys like me. And it, it, but it was much funnier than that. I mean, he was really, really, you know, he had a wonderful way of speaking and everybody liked it. And I would say that you shouldn't, that I wouldn't generalize about how football players are any way that I would generalize about any sort of randomly collected group of people. That being said, one thing that is certainly true is that they're all pretty young, and a lot of them, uh, and while they've all gone to college, they all there are a lot of young things that probably happen. The things you're saying, the, the Rafe Rice thing, I think that one of the reasons that it's such a big story is that it's horrifying, but it's also a little bit of an aberration. In other words, I don't think too many people saw anything like that in the same way that they that the Richie incognito bullying situation that people had seen too much of anything like that. And they become big stories because football is a big national spectacle and it's an opportunity for things that are on our mind as a country. It's an opportunity to use that spectacle as a prism to think about these things. And just as there's an ongoing conversation out in the culture about violence against women, just as there's one about bullying in schools and things, these are, not, these are effective ways, I think, that a big popular institution is a means of talking about it. I don't know anybody there. I'm sure I must have been in the company of people who would do horrible things like that. I never heard people talking that way about women. I heard, you know, I heard sort of, you know, I heard the kind of conversation that sometimes I heard in high school in talking about women, but I never heard anything that was so gratuitously violent and, um, you know, it was a sort of sick thing to do. But I do want to say, though, that, you know, this was before Michael Sam. And I did hear the way they talked about homosexuality. And it was surprising to me that I, who went to high school quite a long time ago, and at a time when I used to hear the way people talked about, you know, gay men. And it was nobody, I think, then had ever was talking about that in my high school locker room had ever met a gay man. But the way they talked about it was the way some of the people in the facility talked about, um, you know, just they talked about, you know, they, they used to like, for example, they would put pump, bumper stickers. See, they would have nighttime raids, and they put bumper stickers on the back of rookies' cars or something like that. It would say like "I stop for gay bars," and then they wait to see how many days the rookie would discover the bumper sticker and then take it off. I mean, this seemed to me this is the most juvenile. And I thought we are not past this. And I thought that part of it was simply, you know, that it's a there. There was a certain you know current of immaturity that was going through. But again, I wouldn't completely generalize. Um, you know, I, I'm. It's a it's a violent it's a violent sport, and um, I'm yeah. curious if if it's less pervasive than I seem to have gotten the impression that it is. Why do you think the NFL felt the need to cover up the fact that they knew about it a long time ago? The, and the, and just because the NFL is first and foremost a business. It is a big, big business. And the NFL always behaves the way certain kind of corporations do, which is that it thinks of its own interests first. It's, 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 not, it's not, I mean, there are many, many good people in football, but it seems to me, and this is just a personal, this is an opinion and an impression. I speak only for myself. But in my opinion, this is a big business, and people res- they, it, it invariably responds defensively in moments when it feels that you know that there's something unflattering is out there. And generally, you know, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Is <laughs> this happens over and over? It happened with bounties. It happened with bullying. It's happening here. Um, 
and you know the NFL is progressive in many ways. I think in terms of technology, it's the most progressive sport. It's always on the. That's one of the reasons it's been so successful. You know, in terms of television and many other ways, football leads sort of in terms of opening up the culture to different forms of technology, different ways of looking at the world. But in these so, in terms of these social norms, I find it incredibly backward. And this is just one more example. And so, why did it do this? Why did they behave this way? It was a mistake to behave this way. It was an unforgivable mistake. But it also happened, I think, because of that sort of, it was a sort of a lawyered up decision, it felt to me. That's just my opinion. I don't really have any inside knowledge. But, you know, if, if I, that, that's just my sense. So, it's an opinion rather than, but I never saw anything like that. Or, and I, most of the people I knew would be absolutely horrified. I bet, you know, I'm going, to, when I'm going to Cleveland tomorrow to give a reading in Cleveland tomorrow night. And so I'll see a couple of the people who I knew with the Jets in Cleveland. And I bet when we talk about it, they're going to be, they were so horrified, for example, by Joe Paterno. Mike Patton, who grew up in Pennsylvania, and Joe Paterno had been his idol. When he found out what was going on there, he said, Joe Paterno was my coaching hero throughout my life. But Joe Paterno enabled a monster, and I just, I, I don't ever want to say, I mean, you know, there are a lot of really, really good people within football. You can't generalize about it, but that was a despicable thing to have. <laughs> I mean, you know, sure. John? It's a good point. It's pro football. was integrated before Major League Baseball in My question about Mo Berg is this, and it's been 20 years, I'm trying to remember, but he had a, a, a idiosyncrasy with regards to his newspapers. I was just wondering if you had any opportunity to like identify the mental what he's referring to is that Moberg was an inveterate reader of newspapers, and he read as many as eight to ten a day, and they were of real physical importance to him. And he didn't like other people to touch his newspapers if he hadn't read them. So if he had a copy of the New York Times here, and he was reading his Washington Post and you wanted to borrow his New York Times while he was reading the Post, as your hand came near, he'd say, it's alive, it's alive. And if you touched it, he wouldn't read it. He'd get another copy. This was, some would call it an idiosyncrasy, maybe it went a little further. I mean, you know, he was, he wore every day in baseball, he wore a baseball uniform, of course, as part of a team. For the rest of his life, he wore a Moberg uniform. The Moberg uniform was invariably a gray suit, a white shirt, black tie and black shoes, and he wore this Moberg uniform all his life. I don't know that Moberg, I, I, I couldn't really ass- assess, you know, I'm not qualified to do it, and I don't think anybody who was qualified ever did it, but I would just say that one of the things that was both interesting and a little sad for somebody who was writing about him were Moberg's personal complications. Moberg's story, in, when you're writing about it, is a very, on a lot of levels, a very unsettling and very human story. You know, this is someone who really was a Major League Baseball player and he really was a spy. And for the last 30 years of his life, he wasn't a spy, but he missed being a spy so much that he was, in effect, a spy manque, a faux spy who's pretending to be a spy. And he went around the world visiting all these illustrious people he'd known from, you know, he'd visit Joe DiMaggio, he'd visit Tutch Shore, he'd visit Einstein, he'd visit, you know, sports writers knew he, were who he was friends with, would open their door in Chicago and they'd, you know, in advance, in order to bed, uh, you know, you know, a double, two different beds, and they'd open up the bathroom, and there would be Moberg in the bathtub when they checked into their room. He'd checked in ahead of them. You know, he had all these 
you know, and these are fascinating things, and I'm all for fascinating people, but I think life was a little hard for him, and he found ways to make a life which was difficult for him as it is for many people tolerable. And so he had a system, and it worked for him, and it's, that's a pleasure to write about, but I think it was, also, it was not without complications to live. To me, the story, it's easy to say that he was a fraud, that he was a charlatan, that he was someone who was saying he was something, that he was, you know, he was pretending to be a spy, but he wasn't really a spy. I chose not to see it that way. I think that there have been a lot of people who've been Major League Baseball players. There have been a lot of people who've been professional intelligence officers. Only he, to my knowledge, has been really successful at both. But beyond even that, this kind of self-invention, this sort of self-fashioning, I I find that really interesting, and I find it really human. I find, you know, that someone loved to do something so much that he would find a way to, in some sort of subtle way, keep doing it. I mean, live a sort of a secret life for the rest of your life is, I think, poignant, and yet it's also really human. And I really, how many people do that? And I thought, I, in the end, I can't say just, you know, I can't say per se what what his what his men- mental health situation, I, it, it certainly was complicated. But I can say that um, he lived a really original life, and not that many people do it to that, to that extent. And I really admired that in him. Wait. You, you mentioned the comparison between the football players you worked with in high school. I loved your book, The Privacy of Tapping, about baseball and how, how important it was playing with your kids in Willow Street. I was wondering, have you been back there? I mean, have you seen any of the people you played with in the old days, or are there kids playing football now instead of baseball? You know, I live there. I mean, I live in New Haven. That's my home. And um, so I've certainly been back. And I don't know what it is. It's a, it's, it seems to me that there's been, you know, the old playground culture doesn't really exist, in, in at least in New Haven, the way it did when I was a child. You know, for me, I didn't really think of that as a baseball book. I thought of that primarily as... I grew up in a, this is a book called The Crowd Sounds Happy that began as a New Yorker piece about my father who was very significantly mentally ill. And growing up with someone, I didn't know that as a child, and I grew up with just my mother and my sister, and in my bedroom as a child was a radio. And on the radio, I listened to the Red Sox games. And these were the men in the house. There was just my mother, my sister, and me. And listening to those games, the, 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 those were the male voices in, in the house. And I loved to play baseball. And so the broadcast, the voices of the broadcasters were men. They were sort of virtual men in the house. But they were describing people who were sort of the apotheosis, the exemplars of something that I really like to do. And there's something really, well, interesting, because the games are, as you all know, it's a fascinating narrative every night. But more than that, it was also really comforting for me because it seemed as though these good guys were in my room. And my dad, who lived here, but was a frightening person. I mean, it wasn't his fault, but that was just the facts. You know, and I didn't, have any, I didn't really know what was going on with him except for that that there was something, it was really nice to have that radio there and to import into the room that sort of, this sense of, you know, I don't know, good guys in the room. So that's really, I thought of that book as sort of a, you know, I thought a lot about why people like something. And I thought, well, it really began for me there because there was something so beautiful about the distance quality of baseball through a radio that you could make it up and that in your life it could satisfy certain kinds of needs or desires or things. And I... I think for me that's why it's always been much as I love to go to games and much as it's fun to watch on TV with a bunch of friends or something still there's something really special about listening on the radio and so like as with so many things for everyone it sort of goes back to childhood in that way and back then you didn't have dive commercials for every 15 minutes 
you had Narragansett beer advertising for, you know, Hey Neighbor, you know, those were great. And you had Zare, the discount department store. <laughs> Compare, you can't do better than Zare. Uh, yeah, I remember the ads from my childhood better than I remember from last week. Um, yeah, I always wanted to write a book. I loved growing up. I loved books like Tom Sawyer and David Copperfield and My Antony, all these books, coming-of-age books, and they're all novels. And I wanted to try to write a book like that that was nonfiction, since I'm a nonfiction writer. So that was my little attempt to do that. We're, we're going to get to your question in just a second, but first I have to let the podcast audience uh, go for the evening because of time constraints. So on the uh, 105th birthday of your grandmother, it's really been a pleasure uh, welcoming Nicholas Davidoff, the author of The Catcher Was a Spy and Collision Low Crossers, to the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you.